The scripture reading tonight is from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. The word of the Lord. Before there were roses or dandelions or trees, giraffes or dogs or chimpanzees, when man did not yet exist and earth was watered by a mist, God took some specks of dust he found just lying there on the ground. He shaped the dust and formed a man and breathed into his nose and then the man could walk and talk and sing for he was now. A living thing. These are the opening stanzas from the children's Bible storybook, A Garden and a Promise. Published in 1973 by Arch Books, subtitled Quality Religious Books for Children. I have it right here. It has a distinctive 70s children picture book illustration style. The cover uh, shows a young man and a young woman. He has his arm around her shoulders. Uh, They're both smiling. He is sort of a dark orangey, and she is pink. Of course, they're both naked. She has long hair strategically covering her breasts, and she is holding what appears to be a bouquet of roses in front of her, again, strategically placed. And then sitting beside the man, is a Dalmatian puppy. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, this Dalmatian puppy. This Dalmatian puppy has his head turned to the right and up as if to smell the roses, um, which also provides cover for the young man's genitalia. Oh, and his hair is purple. I don't know why. I know we can ask ourselves about these things. Why does she have a bouquet of roses? Um, It looks perhaps maybe they've just gotten married. It kind of has that look. Maybe the implication is necessary to assure parents and young readers that any being fruitful and multiplying they might do is within the bounds of a sanctioned, committed, long-term relationship. I don't know. I mean, and then uh, the Dalmatian. What is... I've never heard of Adam and even the Dalmatian before. (laughs) I mean, what is up with this puppy? I mean, is it just because it's cute for children? I mean, sure, the puppy does give the young Adam man coverage. Um, 
But what, couldn't they have just used like a bush or a leaf or some tall blade of grass or something to make it more realistic? Or maybe, you know, maybe they tried all that and it looked weird. You know, maybe with any kind of branch or blade of grass, it's just, there's no way around it looking phallic. So maybe they tried everything and just went, you know what? Give her some roses and put a puppy in there and we'll be done with it. Then God told the man, every plant in view, I give you to be food for you. Except the tree of knowledge and good and evil, that one's not for food. The rhyme scheme is a little tortured at times. Then God made a woman from the rib that he'd taken from the man, and where the man, when the man awakened, the man looked at her and said, finally... I have a helper fit for me. I'll call her woman, for she alone is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. So the man and woman lived happily, eating fruit from every tree that God had given, except for the one for which God had said it should not be done. Then one day, when the woman was walking alone among the trees, she heard the drone of the voice of the snake saying, that's pushing it. Snakes don't drone. Everybody knows that, even if it does rhyme with alone. Yeah, I mean. So, um, then one day, when the woman was walking alone among the trees, she heard the drone of the voice of the snake saying, did God really say you shouldn't eat the fruit? How silly. When, may, we may eat of all, of, of all, the woman said, and then she added with a nod of her head, we may eat of all the trees except one. Of that tree in the center we must eat none. Or surely die, we will die as God has said, and <laughs> we really don't want to end up dead. Now, uh, no, you don't want to end up dead. I mean, as funny and fun as all this sounds, uh, you know, um, that rhyming silly God will take you out. You will not die, the snake replied. Rather, God knows that um, when you've tried, the fruit, your eyes, will open far, and you'll know what good and evil are. The woman looked at the fruit in surprise, and for the first time she realized that that fruit looked better than any other so she picked one, and then she uh, picked another. She ate one, and the other she shared with the man, and soon they became quite scared. For the fruit indeed had made them wise to good and evil. It did open their eyes. And soon they began to feel quite bad and very ashamed of the bodies they had. I've never really heard it put quite like that before. Ashamed of the body they had. Like, is this the beginning of body image issues? You start it young with the kids? I mean, I've always took their shame of their nakedness in a more general metaphorical, I don't know, metaphorical vulnerability something. But this seems to imply they're ashamed of their particular bodies. I mean, I can definitely see how, like, humanity's original sin could lead to shame and a poor body image? I mean, for me, not for you, but uh, it just seems like this is pointing something here. 
I mean, I hope there's not some underlying message about being ashamed of the body you have because of the shameful things you do with your body. So since they didn't have cloth or leather, they gathered some fig leaves and sewed them together. Again, I'll just point out quickly, I've never heard leather brought in here. Where are you? God called out loudly, and the man answered, not very proudly. I heard you coming, and I was afraid because I was naked. And the Lord said, Who said you were naked? Why have you hid? You have not eaten that fruit I forbid. The man replied, The woman you made brought me the fruit, and the woman said, It was not my fault, it was the snake who made me do it for goodness sake. Then there's a couple pages of all the very particular ways and unique ways God will punish each one of them, concluding with the woman. Because of what you have done, you will have pain and sorrow. But one day, I promise, I will rescue you from sin and death, so you never need fear, for I'll be with you always, year after year. So the man and woman were driven away from their beautiful home in the garden that day. The day they decided they wanted to be like God and ate from the forbidden tree. But God promised them one day he would send his son down to earth and rescue all men from their terrible fate. And he promised he'd never leave them, but he'd be with them forever. Am I the only one wondering... What happened to that puppy? <laughs> well, that is a, certainly a bouncy, rhymy tale, teaching young children that God created them, provided everything for them, maybe even provided things that they weren't supposed to have. Um, wait, are they supposed to want the things that they cannot have? Are they supposed to desire the fruit of the tree? and then have the strength to resist the desire? Or is the desire like kind of a sin as well? well? I guess either way, the children know that if they give in to their desire, God promises he will kill them. And even if he doesn't make good on that promise right away, all of you will eventually die as a result. But in the end, don't worry, God's sending his son to rescue all men from their terrible fate, and also he will never leave them. Which that last part, of course, I feel bad for the women um, that he won't save, but also that last little bit about never leaving them sounds a little bit like a threat, like I'll be watching you. A garden and a promise. Published in 1973 by Arch Books, Quality Religious Books for Children. There are many, many children's storybooks, but the most ubiquitous in my childhood were these Arch Books. I suspect maybe some of you are familiar with them. Concordia Publishing House, which was founded in 1869, is the official publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri. The rabbis tell us that the first thing the authors 
of Genesis tell us is that God, what God did was to make one thing or no things into two things. God separates the heavens and the earth. Now it is possible to see one from the other. The Hebrew Bible is not the only story that narrates this beginning from above. As Debbie mentioned last week, there are similarities to the Babylonian creation myth. And their origin stories from above uh, come from the Japanese and the Iroquois, among other. Even Doomtree begins their treatise on capitalism and alienation, the grand experiment from above. I mean, maybe there are some stories from which they can only be started out and understood from that perspective. Perspective and viewing and regarding and considering and contemplating, seeing is only possible with at least some distance from a thing. Distance requires separation. The ancient rabbis described that the act of creation is the, an act of separation continually. The rabbis describe that for six days, creation, that creation can, continues, God is separating things. He separates the heavens from the earth. He separates the light from the darkness, the upper waters from the lower waters, the sea from the dry land, and the moon from the sun. Aviva Zornberg, one of our patron saints, House of Mercy, riffing on what the, what the rabbis, writes that the act of separation in creation continues through Adam and Eve's expulsion from paradise, that that too is this kind of act of separation, this creative act of separation, um, that they are not actually fully human until they are separated from the complete intimacy they have with God and each other in the garden. Before they are sent out of the garden, they are one with God and each other, a sort of unity of psyche. They are like infants who do not know where they end and their mothers begin. And like an infant, they have no self-awareness of their needs. They are hungry and they cry. They are offered the breast and they eat. They cannot see each other. They cannot long for or desire each other because there is no distance between them. The Concordia Publishing House in St. Louis publishes the well-known Arch Children's Books series. Concordia Publishing House is the oldest publishing company west of the Mississippi and the world's largest distinctly Lutheran publishing house. The first Arch books came out in 1965 as did I. And this year, the series will celebrate its 50th anniversary. There are currently 125 titles in the series, and they have sold over 60 million copies. They put out six new titles a year, and they are currently printing and distributing 850,000 a quarter. The name Arch and its distinctive logo is taken from the symbol of their hometown the St. Louis Arch. They are dedicated to teaching children Bible stories 
and that is important to them, they begin, and they say on their website, with serious research. They take the stories straight from the Bible, and the authors and um, illustrators dig into resources, and they seek to present the story in scripturally and historically accurate ways. Because they say, every book reflects what we know from God's word. By showing children traditional clothing and examples of biblical buildings and landscapes, arch books prove con provide content that children will remember during their lifetime of learning. This company, with their series, is committed to telling children Bible stories. They want children to know the arc of the story of our sacred book. They think by these small, simplistic stories, children will take those stories inside them and carry them with them for the rest of their lives. I am grateful to them for that. That is a really good thing to do. We are a people gathered around a particular story. A story that I think is important. It's a story that we should be passing on, teaching, to our children. We need to tell each other these stories over again. We, some of us, you know, would, could use some knowledge of the overarching uh, history that is in our sacred book. And for this, I am grateful. I guarantee you that this next year, when we're telling these stories children's stories from the Bible, that I'm not going to come up here and make fun of a children's story every week. I mean, I could make snarky comments about the outdated illustrations or how their theology is uh, horrific and naive and damaging, um, but I'm not going to do that because these stories don't belong to just, you know, liberal, posing, quasi-hipster pastors. They belong to the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod children as well. It's not just our little corner of the world, our little place here in St. Paul, um, who can take these stories and these sacred texts. It's important for us all to gather around these stories and to share our interpretations of these stories together. Because when we do that, we create more mercy. We create more room for more mercy we open up our circles and we open up ourselves to learning from those who we might disagree with completely. We may grow and grow in our interpretations and understandings of their stories from the Bible. We may originally hear the desire of Eve as something sinful that causes death and unleashes sin on every generation that follows, when we might grow and come to understand that this desire, this desire that we have is something that God gives us to allow us to search for meaning, to search for each other, to make connections with God, these stories we tell each other are about desire. When you tell somebody else your story, it's a desire to find them or to be more present with them, for them to know you or for you to know them. 
Stories are born of a desire to be with, to reconnect. We come each other every, here every week, and we reenact this great story of desire. Desire. 